Coming up on the House of Kraus, Ethan Hawke talks about the Dead Poet Society, Richard Linkletter, and his new film, Maudie. And we go long with legendary star Anne-Margaret. I get knocked down so many times, and I have accidents in my life, and I keep getting up. So they call me Slugger. This idea that you were going to reach some level, and then life was going to plateau out and always be good, has never happened to me. I don't have a middle name, and my last name is Olsen, O-L-S-S-O-N. I've always had a sense of everything changing all the time. Golly, what a long time ago. I haven't talked about this forever. There was something about the feeling of making Before Sunrise with Julie and Rick that felt like, mm, I'm going to be able to make art in my life. They didn't show me a mirror. And I, I knew, oh boy, something must be really wrong. You won't show me a mirror. Most of us aren't in giant espionage battles or helicopter chases. Or most of us don't need a superhero. You are so charming. Thank you so very much. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in, pull up a seat at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni, and sit back and enjoy the conversations. First up, we have Ethan Hawke. Everybody loves Ethan Hawke. Right now, he's starring in a movie called Maudie. It's the true story of folk artist Maude Lewis. It's a romantic story about a physically challenged woman who found beauty in life's simplicity and the man who loved her. Hawk plays Everett, her sometimes gruff but loving husband. Here's Ethan Hawk. I've got a place in Nova Scotia probably in the late 90s. Um, and I've been going up there, you know, once or twice a year ever since then. I love it up there. And I just kind of grew to love that land and the people there and what that energy is about. And I've met men like Everett. And uh, I get, when I look at Maude Lewis's paintings, I just, I get so moved by them. And um, so, you know, it was through a friend of a friend that they thought I might like the script just because I liked Nova Scotia so much. And they were right. You know, there's, um, of course, then they tricked me and the shooting ended up being a Newfoundland. But I was so excited. I thought I could shoot this movie and live in my house, but I couldn't. <laughs> well, I, I think the only part of eastern Canada that's better than Nova Scotia or as cool is Newfoundland. It, it's it's really yeah. wonderful. The people, uh, the wonderfulness the of it all. It, it, they're definitely brothers and sisters, you know, those two places. Yeah. Let's talk about Everett. Uh, Everett, when we first meet him, is uh, pretty shut down. And then Marty helps change his life. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, playing someone who I, 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 we're supposed to like, but when we first meet him, he's not particularly likable. Uh, you know, it's always a danger. You know, one of the first things they always teach you in acting class is like, if you, it's, it's always fun and such a great experience to get to play characters that audiences love. You know, it just feels really good. But often, to tell an interesting story, you know, you have to play people who are badly behaved and audiences are going to respond. You know, and I I feel as, as gruff and um, as unacceptable as a lot of Everett's behavior is, it was not uncommon at all of men of that time period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I remember my grandmother always accusing my grandfather of not wanting a husband, not wanting a wife, but a maid, you know, and Everett, I, Everett's not looking for love. Everett doesn't, you know, give a, a, 
you know what's the right word? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't care about romantic love in that way. The the notion is, uh, you know, comic to him. He wants, you know, uh, to be taken care of. Um, and um, uh, and he's somebody who, through the course of that relationship, learns how to love. And I I found that story really surprising in the subtle details of their internal power shifts. Um, I thought we're really true to life, um, you know, that all long-term relationships have strange power dynamics when the behavior between the couple is always shifting about who's in charge and in charge of what and what that does to their love and how that changes. And I just thought it was a, a beautiful journey to go from somebody who was basically, you know, abusive to somebody who knew how to love and care for another person. Uh, it's a fascinating character to get to play. And there's a scene in the film that I absolutely love. It's it, when uh, when Sandra, or as we in the East Coast would call her Sandra, <laughs> comes over and, and pays Maudie the first kind of real money that she's ever made for painting. And I think it was $5, plus they negotiate an extra dollar for shipping, to shipping the right. to New York. And the, the look on... Maudie's face. It just, it almost brought me to tears, the idea that she was so joyful and so happy and so excited that something she had made, something she had created was was going to be out there in the world. And, and as I was watching that and later on thinking about that scene, I was thinking about sort of these moments that happen in everybody's life when, when finally you know, after struggling or, or whatever it is, that finally things start to work out, you know, in that moment. And I just wonder, and this is kind of an odd question, but do you remember a moment sort of early on maybe in your career when you, you had that sort of breakthrough moment, that kind of joyful moment that, that meant that things were probably going to be okay career-wise? You know, it's a very interesting conversation. I, I've heard tales of people having moments like that. Yeah. For me, I've always been in uh, this idea that you were going to reach some level and then life was going to plateau out and always be good has never happened to me. Right. Um, I've always had a sense of everything changing all the time. And I remember I remember meeting Richard Linkletter and feeling like, oh, this is really good. This is, I, I like working with this person, and I think I was, I enjoyed working with my own generation and getting to tell stories and feeling like, I, I, there was something about the feeling of making Before Sunrise with Julie and Rick that felt like, hmm. I'm going to be able to make art in my life. Right. And that's, uh, that's a relief. You know, I, I had this, as, as much as Dead Poets Society had been a, a blessing in my life, I, I, it also had, was like some giant sword being raised because I knew that like this, it, it created an expectation and a potential that I felt like I was only worried I was going to disappoint. Meaning, what if I never have an experience like this again? You know? Um, and I was 17 when I had it. You know, that would just be such a drag. Um, and, um, and so there was that. But I also have to say that because, maybe because I started so young, that I've, I've 
been on a journey to get to that moment you described my whole life. I just keep thinking, when is it going to be? When's it going to get a little easier? Yeah. I always, it always, I, I, I always feel like a little bit like Sisyphus, you know, just always pushing these rocks, um, never kind of getting where I want to be. Um, and I envy people. I remember hearing this story about Jack Nicholson at Cannes Film Festival, and he watched the screening of Easy Rider, and he realized that he was a movie star. He tells a funny story about realizing, like, oh, wow, I'm a movie star. Like, I'm going to do this my whole life. And I thought, God, what a great feeling. Yeah. Like, I wonder what that's like. And I, I never had that feeling like, oh, okay, I'm going to be good at this. I, I've never, um, never had that feeling. Well, it, interesting, like, the, what I took away, like, I, I've, I've written a bunch of books now, and, and I remember when the box came with the first book. You know, they send you 20 or 25 copies or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it arrived, and I sat there and stared at it unopened for a very long time because, you know, for my whole life, I was, I don't know, 32 or 3 or something like that. And for my whole life, I'd wanted to write a book, and there it was. It was going to be in that box. And, and I knew that things were going to be different. Better or worse, I don't know, but things were going to be different after that. You never had yeah, that. You were, you were a writer. You're, you're, a real, you're a real writer. I mean, if you know, I love, my brain often goes to things like that, too. You're like, well, this will be on my obituary. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, well, this, this, this is who I am. This book or whatever it is, this film, like, you know, uh, that'll be on my obituary. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I know that's that's a great feeling. I, I know, I know exactly. I know what you mean. Yeah. So the the story of of Everett and Maud, I think, appeals to people for a lot of reasons. It's a very specific story, but I think that in its specificity, it's kind of universal in a lot of ways. And I think that the emotional journey that you go on with them is in part due that uh, to to this idea that they survived, their love survived, that they survived under very you know, difficult circumstances, um, any number of things that, that seems to be connecting with audiences here. What do you think audiences are taking away? You know, I, I don't know, but I think that for most of us, um, our, most of us aren't in giant espionage battles or helicopter chases or most of us don't meet a superhero for most of us the real events of our lives correspond around love and the losing of it and the gaining of it and the intimacy that happens in our life shapes when our children are born and um how we feel about any given time period of our life has to do with that and and i think that it's very difficult to make love stories for adults because they're complicated. It's easy to make love stories for young people, you know, but, but to make a grown up love story, um, it's very difficult. It, it's, uh, you know, it's like Arthur Miller says a great quote about, you know, everybody likes to, everybody's interested in stories about falling in love that end in getting married or stories that start with a breakup and, and in somebody finding resolution, you know, but what's very difficult to do is to show the actual relationship, right. you know? Um, and, and, to, and I love this story for the messiness of real life of it. You know, the fact that, you know, they were, you know, she really never had any, you know, I mean, she, they, they were broke their whole lives. You know, they had health ailments, 
Um, they kind of loved each other, and they were kind of the bane of each other's existence. You know, I just love, I love the, the and of course, her art is somehow symbolic of being able to find joy in small places. Yeah. And I think that is universal, and it speaks to anybody in any situation. But um, I think that's what drew me to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I, I love that her art was inspired by looking out the window. It just the, this idea that sometimes simple stuff, simple things can enrich your life in ways that I think that sometimes we forget. I know, and you know, I, I totally agree with what you just said. And, and I, you just look out your window, and it's all—it's all right there for you all the time. It's just sometimes hard to see. And there was something—a lot of Maud's paintings, you know, like that you see. There's just a male deer and a female deer, or a male oxen and a female oxen. And a, you, you know, you see these kind of uh, this dual, this masculine-feminine energy. Just you know, either they're staring away from the can, the lens, or staring right at it, and. In, in a lot of ways, that's what the movie is. It's as simple as that. And that's, it's just as simple as just this portrait of, um, of, of this kind of male and female energy. And we're at our best when we can work well together, you know? And um, uh, I just found it really interesting. That was Ethan Hawke talking about Maudie and loads of other stuff. Next up, though... Elvis Presley affectionately called her Rusty. Her going in style co-star Alan Arkin says she is an absolute joy, but Anne Margaret's closest friends have a different way of describing the legendary star. You'll find out all about that in my conversation with the Viva Las Vegas, the carnal knowledge, the going in style star, Anne Margaret. I was born in Stockholm, but then we moved way up north. Um to a little village called Volchabine, which when Mother and I left, uh, there were 162 people, I think. <laughs> and now, two years ago, there are 98. Wow. And yeah. have you gone back? Yeah, to a couple of years ago. Yeah. In the home that, uh, that I lived in. Yes. Um... Uh, it it was bittersweet because uh, mother and daddy are not here anymore. They are in my heart and in my mind, but um, it was really something. And my my childhood friends, uh, I'd say six or seven of them are still there. And but there's no jobs there, so uh, their children and grandchildren have left. Had they followed your career? Did were they aware? Did what do they have to say to you? You know, it's really interesting. Yes, they were aware of you know what happened, and they continue to be aware. Um, they're just like I never left. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um, you know, I hug them and and kiss them and. It's just like, uh, you know, when we were six years old. Years ago, your friends nicknamed you Slugger. Yes. And who gave you the nickname, and why did they give it to you? Well, one of my friends gave it to me because um, I get knocked down so many times, and I have, you know, accidents in my life. And I keep getting up. 
so they call me Slugger, and one of my friends gave me this gold, for a pin, a, this gold pair of boxing gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that I deserve, I earned it. <laughs> uh, but, but if you don't keep getting back up, you don't have a career that lasts decades and decades and decades. That's right. Yeah. And, and right. did you have a have a, a, a master plan, or was it just that you just never gave up? Well, I learned from my parents, my mother and father, uh, never ever to give up. And do you think that that was uh, uh, an attitude that they developed living in this tiny little town up by the Arctic Circle, where I imagine it wasn't the easiest place to live, um, and well, perhaps they got it from that? Well, you know, you've heard of tough Swedes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daddy was born in a, a coastal city called Urshelfik. And uh, that was entirely, you know, there's thousands of people there. But mother, uh, see, oh, see if I can get this. Okay, I was born in Stockholm. And then uh, we moved to Valshabin, but Daddy left when I was eight months old because uh, he wanted to go to America, and it was during World War II, and it just was too dangerous for uh, Mother and I to go then. So five years, we were in Valshabin, and Daddy was in Chicago. Uh, but then finally... When the war was over, we could go. And it, it's we went to a little town, well, it was little then, called Fox Lake, Illinois, and uh, northwest, 45 minutes northwest of Chicago. And you you ended up there. During those five years, um, I would imagine that he would write letters. Did you have oh, phone sure. and all that stuff? Were you in oh, sure. that way? Yeah. Oh, mother, mother always. He would send pictures all the time and letters. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when we arrived on the Griptholm, this huge ship, which is no longer, um, Daddy was there in New York City waving to us, and he just always looked so nice. He had this great hat on a fedora, and it was in December, and it was cold, and he just looked so handsome, so handsome. And, and of course, Mother pointed out, there's your Daddy. Of course, in Swedish, we didn't know any, any English. Yeah. When did you start learning English? I mean, I guess as soon as Immediately. you hit the ground. <laughs> See, you got that right <laughs> since I hit the ground <laughs> running. Um, and I didn't want... Well, I'm sure everybody feels this way. You know, when you don't want to be called different. Mm -hmm. So, whoops, what was that? I don't know. Let's see. Something happened here. Oh, I have a new text message. Oh. <laughs> it's so weird because nobody knows my name. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, and, of course, Harley, one of our kitties, just opened the door. 
you see, when when they start opening doors and things, that's when you have to. <laughs> you don't want the cats running the house. <laughs> I don't mind that. I don't mind it. I love I love our animals. Oh, he's so smart. He's oh, you know what? He I'm his slave. Yeah. You know when he wants something, I I carry on and carry on, but he knows that he's going to get his way. <laughs> and now that he can open doors. Yeah, I know. What is the limit now? <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. So when you arrive in in the United States, you don't want to be thought of as an outsider, as someone yes. who's a, a, a different, a freak. So you start learning English right away. Was it a, a huge culture shock for you? Well, you know, we went to, to Fox Lake because my auntie Mina, auntie Erda, uncle Charlie, uncle Roy, auntie Gunilla, auntie uh, uh, uncle Arvid, <laughs> yeah, they had all preceded us, and so uh, mother learned. <laughs> And uh, she learned, and I learned in uh, school. And of course, they all had uh, great Swedish accents. <laughs> I'm the only one that didn't have one. <laughs> and my cousins. Uh, well, I learned, and I remember taking dance classes, and I had no idea what the teacher was saying. I just looked at what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and and learned that way, and then eventually, when you you went to New Trier, is it Trier High School? New Trier High School. New Trier, yeah. yeah. There's a Trier in Germany, yeah. and when they came over, uh, they called it New Trier. New Trier, right? And you were a, a cheerleader there. Ah, yes. And now, <laughs> between the dancing and and being a cheerleader, were you always someone who wanted to be in front of people? Since I was four years old. Yeah. And when, what was it about that? It just freed me. Yeah. Um, the hardest part when I do my live show, when I started, was when I sat down and said, Hello, everybody. Good evening. That was me. Right. But the numbers that I did, that was somebody else. And so you were, so there's a, a, a private Anne Margaret, and then there is the, the, the stage, the, the one that you present to the public. Right. And what's the difference between the two? Well, it depends on, you know, where it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can play the part of, you know, well, who could I say? Uh, You know, I've done some films where <laughs> I play really dangerous people. Yes. Uh, so that's not me. <laughs> I guess it's a part of me. Right. Um, I don't. It's so hard to explain. Right. But I know a lot of entertainers are that way. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's protection. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not, if someone doesn't react well to what you've done, it's not you. It's your other persona. Would that be something like it? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Well, 
you've you've said a, a couple of times, and maybe this this uh, uh, wraps around into that. When you say, and the, the quote is, "I was very flattered by the sex kitten thing, but I never thought of myself as that." Oh, never. Yeah. Never, never. And do you think that had you allowed yourself to think that way about yourself, that it might have changed things for you, or it might have uh, uh, given you a, a giant ego, or it might have done, you know, something destructive? Oh, I, I was raised, let's see, how I, um, when I came to this country, I really, you know, I didn't speak English, and I only spoke when spoken to. Um, I curtsied when I met someone, and I curtsied when I said thank you. As a matter of fact, I still, when I do, it's just so natural to me. When I say thank you, I curtsy. <laughs> ah, I, I wasn't that. aware of that until a friend of mine told me. Ah. Some things you can't let go of. Oh, boy, that's right. But, but growing up, it was never like, uh, it was always, oh, she's such a nice girl. She's such a polite girl. You know? It was never anything like the way she looks or whatever. It was always, what a nice girl. What a polite girl. And that stays with you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I always wanted to please my parents. Right. I never, ever wanted to make them sad, make them embarrassed. That's why when I left, um, well, we were living in Wilmette, Illinois at the time, and I went um, to work in uh, Los Angeles. Well, we thought it was Las Vegas, but uh, it was... Las Vegas, we went there, me and uh, piano, bass, and drums. Um, <laughs> we thought we had a, we thought we had a, a job there, right. and they said, oh, I'm so sorry. We like the, the, uh, the band that we have here, and we're keeping them. So we had driven <laughs> all the way, and then we drove to Los Angeles, and... Uh, Finally, you know, after running around and going to every place, we, we got a job there. But what was I saying? Well, <laughs> we were just talking about uh, the, the difference sort of between your public persona, your private oh. persona, and you had said that you wanted to please your parents. And oh, golly, yes. Oh, that's what I want to say. When I was in Wilmette and when I was about to go, I took my last name off and I explained that to Mother and Daddy. At the, at the kitchen table, because I did not want them to be hurt by anything that other people would say about me. Right. And, and, and Margaret uh, uh, was obviously the name that you became known as, but still... Uh, it's, my first, it's my first name. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a middle name, and my last name is Olson, yeah. O-L-S-S-O-N. Yeah. And how did they respond to that? They understood. Yeah. They understood. Was the, the idea of being in show business to them, was it risky for you? Did, did oh, they were so scared. Yeah. But since I was four years old, I, I, I 
sang with mother and we did duets. We would sing at like wedding receptions. <laughs> They'd always say, you know, Anna, you and Anna get, you get up there and and, and, and sing something for us. Yeah, yeah, we should do. Should we? Yeah, we should do And and you would always gladly do it. Oh sure, sure, my gosh. And then George Burns came along and changed your life. Didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine? I mean, something would have happened for certainly, but you know, uh, uh, it, had he not discovered you, things might have been a little different. Oh my goodness! Yes. Oh, yeah. well, we had uh, all of us had been going around, you know, looking for jobs, and then all of a sudden, uh, Mr. Burns saw me and. My pianist of the group, the Subtle Tones, uh, Scott Smith, he happened to come with me, and um, he went with me, you know, to Las Vegas when I did work with Mr. Burns. Um, we went to this. It was what was it? The jet? I can't remember the name of that studio. Has has been changed so many times. Um, we could, uh, they had to find a, a, a piano for me to audition, <laughs> and they found this old, old warehouse thing, and there was a piano. They took the tarp off of it, and it was all dusty. That's like something from a movie. <laughs> it truly is, and you know, it did happen. Yeah. And 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 then you went and performed. With him for ten days in in Las Vegas initially, and you said those ten days and ten nights uh, changed everything. Oh my gosh! Do Do you remember the feeling? Did you feel at that moment like something is like this is big? Things are going to well, be different now. I don't know because you know we had gone around and trying to get jobs for months, but um, golly, what a long time ago! Yeah. I haven't talked about this forever, <laughs> uh, but Scott and I, you know, have always remained friends. We, at the time, were dating um, for like three years, um, and he is uh, now in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, he's well, he's incredible. Yeah. So anyway. I can't believe I'm still here. I know. Well, you are, and, and I am. I'm that I'm alive after <laughs> all these things that have happened. Well, the fall off the stage in Las Vegas. I didn't mean it. I, I didn't mean to fall. I know. <laughs> I know. Who would do that to themselves? No, it was in Lake in Lake Tahoe. Oh, in Lake Tahoe. In Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, but was it 22 feet? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, sir. And and I imagine in a situation like that, you're on stage and then you wake up in a hotel, in a hospital room. That must be what it was like. Do you have any memory of it at all? I remember we had done five performances already, and this was the sixth performance. Um, Not of the day. No, 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 no. In 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 a like in in five or six days. We did we did two performances a night uh, at that time. There was a dinner performance in the midnight, and then 
that particular night, we did the dinner, and then we were just going into the midnight one, and I arrived via 22 feet up on a platform that they hadn't told us that if it if it leaned over more than six inches, then it would flip, and I'd be thrown. So there was one man doing one of the ropes in front, and then one man doing the other one, and I guess one person just did it too I don't know. It just wasn't the same. And there was a bar in front of me. Um, I couldn't get out, but it just flipped, and there I went. And is that's that, what they told me. And that's what they tell you. And that must be when that slugger attitude comes in. Oh, boy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just knew I woke up. I woke up, and I couldn't move because there was a put my teeth together. So they they didn't show me a mirror, and I knew, oh boy, something must be really wrong. They won't show me a mirror. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, wow. and I heard a story where when you would go out for. Uh, with friends, that one of them would always have to have like a pair of pliers or something. Oh yeah, just in case something happened, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> how would you how would you like to go uh, with a friend of yours and you, you get a pair of pliers just in case? Just, just in case. You just know, in know. case. <laughs> in case just in case I have to spill my cookies. <laughs> Now, you have to be a really good friend. You certainly do. Now, we've just got a few minutes left. I just, uh, I wanted to ask you about Bye Bye Bird. Please, could you tell me, could you please tell me, what do you like to be called? Oh, Richard. Okay, Richard. Yeah. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, Bye Bye Birdie and the famous shot of you singing in the wind has been used uh, so often it is iconic. It was used on an episode of Mad Men. It was shown there. Uh, it has been reenacted and, and, and repurposed so many times. What are your memories of making that movie and of shooting that shot? Because I understand that that shot or that the, the, those famous shots were done after the movie was over. You're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. Uh, I thought I'd finished the movie and uh, I went down to my my color hair, which is my real color hair is dark brown, and they said, <laughs> I, and then I had to go back up, this was six months later, go back up to the red, and um, there, there were no railings, six feet up in the air, and, <laughs> and wind machines everywhere, and it was pitch black everywhere else. Um, it was kind of exciting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, at the time, did you think, oh, this is going to look great, or, uh, you know, this is really going to make the movie, because it is the thing that everyone remembers now? I, you know, I had complete faith in my director, Mr. Sidney. Yep. Mr. George Sidney. It was his idea... 
and the uh, studio did not want to do it. They didn't want to pay for it. And he paid for it himself. And when they saw the actual movie, they gave him back his money. <laughs> <laughs> but he had such faith in me. He had so much. He had faith in me, much more faith in me than I did. Right. Which you, is what my my husband has much more faith in me than I do. Well, and and I would perhaps suggest that maybe George Burns did as well at the time. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're lucky to be surrounded by people like that. Oh, hey, Richard, I am so blessed. Mm. So blessed to have, to have been, you know, Roger and I um, have been married for 49 years. Wow. And we were together three years before that. So that's what, for 50, 51. So we've, what, 52 years now? Um... And a family, these incredible friends that, you know, I've had for over 50, over 60 years. I'm just totally blessed. Are you still riding your motorcycle? Well, <laughs> Roger gets extremely nervous <laughs> when I start with that. Um, it's in the garage. It's beautiful. It's lavender. Harley, and it's got daisies uh, all over it, and it's got Harley Davidson written in script in white going all over these flowers. I'll do it. I, and I would imagine that's where the, the name came from, your cat, for your cat. You got it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got him um, in Branson when I was working with Andy Williams, bless his soul. Um, yeah. And one last question, and then I'll let you go, because I don't be sure. out of time. But why don't you watch your own movies? Why do I want? Why, why do you not watch your own movies? Oh, I don't know who that person is. Yeah. I don't know who that is, and I just, I get really uncomfortable. I, I, I see him once. Right. But what, I get really uncomfortable, and I'm my own worst critic, and I just, I did it, and I did it to the best of my ability, and that's it. And then you walk away. I, do, I don't, I don't, you know, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not thrilled with, you know, I don't know how people can do it. <laughs> well, I've seen Going in Style. It's a lot oh, of fun. It's, it, 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 it looked like you and Alan Arkin had a hoot making it. Yeah, and you can tell when there's chemistry between the Oh, actors. Richard, I, it was so much fun. And it reminded me so much of Grumpy Old Men. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the three of them, I call them the boys. <laughs> uh, I loved sitting and watching them. Yeah. Um, both on and off. Uh, and it's so important to see them having a good time, you know, uh, people of a certain age, you don't stop having a good time. Right. You don't stop enjoying one another's company. Uh, there's much more 
to life, you know. You got to keep going. Hey, slugger, <laughs> keep going. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a treat. You are so charming. Thank you so very much. I love talking to Anne Margaret. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation. But that's it. That's all there is. It's time for you to finish up your Negroni, wash out the glass, leave it behind the bar, and be on your way. Be sure to come back, though. We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. Who knows? It just might be one of your favorite people. So come by and see us. <laughs>